Coming up next, our fourth ep- Brandon, we're doing a fourth episode on what? something. We've never done a fourth episode on anything. Never. We're doing a fourth episode on this. What book? Well, I'll give you three guesses. We're going back to James Joyce. <laughs> Possible. Pick. Bucketing. It's the fourth episode of the month of love. You've got uh, women. They've got the uh, got the hourglass figures mm-hmm. that men are so attracted to. And every man he, he finds a woman and he he says, uh, "I love you. Will you marry me?" And then she marries him and they have kids. And that's how the whole uh, human it's race the circle. Of- <laughs> right. The kids die. They become the grass. And then that man and that woman, well, they eat the grass. <laughs> They eat the grass. It's the, it's the circle. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> I'm just, I'm trying to make it. Art. So Maybe a reason on? why you're, th- I'm just gonna, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason why I'm single? Is that what you're saying? No, no, I wasn't gonna go there. Why would, no, I go there? why would I be? It's probably because I haven't been talking like this. <laughs> yeah, probably. That's probably why. Been more talking more like this. If I'd smoked more cigarettes and talked more like this, then, you know, maybe it would. <laughs> Find me as attractive vocally as probably women as getting that ASMR thing right now. Probably. Probably. Mm-hmm. When you were wooing your wife, Brandon, did you talk to her? Oh, yeah. Like this. Like an uh, out-of-breath Batman. <laughs> <laughs> it's what we do that defines us. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm Nathan, your humble and obedient host. Welcome to The Bookening. We've got Brandon. Hey. He's the pastor who's a man. Nope. 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 He's the scholar who's a baller. Yes. We've got uh, Jake. He's the pastor who's a man. Well, Jake and Brandon, I need you guys to help me bring a little country charm to this donor shout out. All right. Both of you just bring your own individual country charm. Brandon, I'll let you go first for Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. <laughs> the lovebirds. <laughs> All right. That's some country charm. Right oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> Jake, and bring a little country charm to Jenny Z, the inscrutable Jenny Z. Jenny Z, the inscrutable Jenny Z. <laughs> That's not a country charm. Sorry, man. I'm just, I'm playing it straight. You're playing it straight. I'm from Evansville. This is how we talk. That's it's right you. there in the voice. Okay. How do you talk from Texas, Brandon? Like this. Like this? Yeah. <laughs> okay. We'll do Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds, Brandon. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. <laughs> lovebirds. All right, Jake, do John and Jill, the lovebirds, and little baby Max. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you think you're from? John, John and Jill, I'm from Indiana, northern Indiana. You know, if you guys like to go fishing. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever been fishing in your life? I, oh, yeah, my dad. My grandpappa used to, yeah, he lived on the lake. We go fishing, we go down to the lake. Can we go fishing? Have you ever met anybody that calls their granddad grandpappy? Yeah, well, my kid, all my kid folk call their, their grandpappy grand, yeah, grandpappy. Oh <laughs> <laughs> we go down the lake, we do a little fishing, a little hunting. Um, John and Jill and little baby Max. Little baby Max. Brandon, I want you to talk my beloved mother, Mother Beth. 
What? My, my beloved mother, mother Beth. My beloved mother Beth. Now, Jake, you can do uh, you do the uh, my my what? My you're, you're who? My <laughs> oh Maya my <laughs> Maya. <laughs> and Brandon, you can do Jake and Katie from West Island to Cold Love Cheese. Jake and Katie <laughs> from Jake we- and Jake and Katie. Who, are, who are Jake and Katie. Jay? Jay. Jay and Katie. Jay and Katie. You're cold and love, G. You'd be mighty cold, but you love Jay love. <laughs> <laughs> and Brad. Brandon is from Texas, and his Texas accent sucks. <laughs> yeah, what... I'm sure you can do a good Texan. Can you do a good Texas accent? I don't think I can. Sorry. Oh, uh, Jake, uh, I, I, you do Benny, Car- Benny T, Benny Tiberius. Ben Tiberius. Ben Tiberius. There you go. That's, that's, that's as good as I can. Kentucky outfit? No, right. that's not how Kentuckians sound. Well, how do Kentuckians sound? Kentuckians, I'm sorry, Kentucky people. It's fast <laughs> and it's nasal. It's not slow. A draw is for the deep south. The, the deeper south you get, the slower the draw tends to be. But Kentucky is fast and nasal. <laughs> Hey, that's the that's the more Kentucky like at least the Kentucky that I that I know. What you going? Hey, we're going to talk about Mansfield Park. That's your Kentucky accent. I love it. You do the Nathan, not Nathan. Nathan, not Nathan. Now, Jake, you do that. Nathan's, I think, is from like Alabama. Yeah, do a nice Alabama accent for Alabama. You can give a nice slow Southern draw too. Nathan. No, Nathan. <laughs> he thinks he can do an Alabama accent. It's really southern in the south, in the deep south. You talk slower and lower. And that that's, that's the, I think, the main distinction. It's slower and lower. Slower. Slow and low. Slow and low. Time's a flat circle. Wait, Nathan? No, Nate. All right. Now, Jake. <laughs> Jake. You can do Eric and Catherine. Lovebirds. Eric and Catherine. The lovebirds. Is that it? <laughs> no, no. We still got, you still got to do Professor X. We can't forget about Professor X. Professor X. <laughs> we really think it's hilarious to insult half our fan base. Yeah. Southerners, they, you're so much cooler than us. I'm from the South. Brandon's from the South. And I can't speak like a Southerner. <laughs> no. I understand. I can talk like a Southerner. <laughs> I don't know what kind of accent I'm doing. It's kind of maybe a Florida kind of, I don't know. Alligator accent. Yeah, kind of an alligator kind of Southern sort of, I don't know. Cormac McCarthy villain accent. Cormac <laughs> McCarthy villain kind of an accent, yeah. Well, folks, let's talk about some Mansfield Park now. Let's see, we'll pull up my notes here so we can. Oh. Jake? Yeah. Jake, yep. You said in private conversation to me. I do believe this was not on mic. That if Pride and Prejudice was a book that you would give every dating person, because who's yeah, the age it's of for, dating? It's for the pre-married mostly. Then you said or, that, or it's something that it's not just for the pre-married, but it's. I would definitely want anybody who's headed that direction. There's a specific group of people that need the wisdom in that book and it's the pre-married, oh, yeah. the dating, the yep. people, the 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 men that are looking upon maids and trying to make their choice and vice versa. High school, high school, college, early college, all that all that good stuff. You said that Mansfield Park you thought could serve a similar function 
for a different group of people. What group of people? You said this in private conversation with me. Yeah, I think Mansfield Park is really helpful for parents, for moms and dads, and dads in particular. What do you think about that, Brandon? Agree or true or false, Brandon? Mansfield Park is... Intrigued. Intrigued. You're intrigued. (laughs) Intrigued. Intrigued. (laughs) (laughs) For the sake of argument, but actually, I agree. (laughs) Totally. But intrigued. Continue, Jake. Well, do tell Jake this. You think so? You think every bouncing bundle of joy is the doctor says it's a a creature, a human creature that you've birthed. Then the doctor he should pull out a copy of Mansfield Park and hand it to you. That's that's your contention. I'd be an awesome doctor. (laughs) Pretty awesome doctor. Yeah, be an amazing doctor. Well, I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) No, I wouldn't go that far. But um, I. I do think it's it's helpful and <laughs> well. Let me ask you this: Yeah, are we specifically talking about the character of Sir Thomas, or is there more than one parental figure? Well, okay, so there are a couple of things we we've talked before about how part of what Austin's playing with in this novel is manners versus morals, mm-hmm. manners versus character, right? right? So we see that, and we see that we see that Sir Thomas in particular is very concerned with the manners of his kids, mm-hmm. and he doesn't really pay any attention to their character. Doesn't even really seem to know that he needs to. It's not that he doesn't pay attention to it. It's that he equates it with exactly. outward behavior. Exactly. And so he thinks he's just got it nailed. Like he thinks yeah, like the, the, problem solved. Their external behavior is great. So he's got great kids and they're just only going to do Mansfield more and more credit. And so, yeah, he totally just equates them. And we see that by outward manner, his kids are able to comport themselves in public in a way that is very creditable. Mm-hmm. To, to, <laughs> That's a great to, word. To the, <laughs> to the Bertram family. Mm-hmm. And by contrast, the Price kids, they don't have that. I mean, we see that when we go and we visit with them. They don't have the manner. And so by one-to-one... They don't have the more... Well, that's not actually true because we have Susan. Right. Right? She's got the stuff. Well, I think a boring, stupid, modern author would actually do the old switcheroo that you're describing where all the poor... Ha, have kind of all of people have actually, all of the character, but maybe are just a little crude in their manners. Right, but and then all actually, the Austin doesn't do, doesn't no. do that. That's what I love about that section where Fanny goes back and sees her family. As painful as it is, it's nice to see that Austin's not just saying, "Oh, oh, the poor are great." Well, so what you end up seeing when you go there is that it would have been better for the Price family to have some of the external governance mm-hmm. that was placed upon the 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 Bertram children, right? If they had been taught the manners, if they had been taught really ultimately their place, mm-hmm. right? If they had a sense of who they are and what their place was within their families and within their homes, then it would have been better for them. But it would have only addressed the ex- externals. Mm-hmm. And that's what Sir Thomas is caught up in are the externals. So you have you know, the description of his daughters and their character. So you have early on, just in, in chapter two, talking about the kids and talking about how the uh, the girls in particular were were cultivated. And so you have this like they don't really try to integrate Fanny. Mm-hmm. Everybody, by the way, if you have somebody was mentioning to us the other day their impatience with uh, Fanny's insecurity. Mm-hmm. If you if you get to the end of the novel and you're annoyed by how insecure Fanny is, I'd encourage you to go back and just reread chapter 2 because I was looking at it before I I came here. You've got this 10-year-old girl being taken away from her family 
and just being expected to be grateful and told how low and mean and nasty she is and how little anything is expected of her and just pounded into the ground the entire way by her Aunt Norris. So she gets there and all she feels is that she's worthless and also she got her whole family taken away from her and she's not worth being noticed by anybody. Mm -hmm. Nobody takes any notice of her. And so she's just alone. And And then she has these cousins and these cousins, the way they talk about her and to her. And they go to their Aunt Norris and it's all, did you know she can't even do her geography? She doesn't right. even know how to get to Ireland from And Aunt here. Norris, because she's the most horrible Hitler of all time, except for excluding perhaps the original Hitler, she encourages it. She encourages it. Oh, yeah. But she encourages it in this like, well, you know, some people are stupid and We've got it's, to be kind. it's wonderful that you're really brilliant, but it's really good for you to condescend to stupid people. It's just a really nasty, awful way. <laughs> So, I, I will so, say before we get away from it, to the person that we were talking to who was annoyed with Fanny's behavior through the novel, I think you really do have to think about how she was... Like, what, for example, when her uncle sends the carriage to bring her to the little dinner party and she's shocked that he, like, she never expected he would send the carriage. And that's not Fanny being like a goody two-shoes. Oh, you'd send the carriage for little old me? That's her, honestly, having been given by others, bullied into, yeah. having been bullied into having such well, a... Well, she's voicing exactly what her aunt says, like, right. you're sending the carriage for Fanny. And then the mom says, you're sending the carriage for Fanny. Right. So everybody's saying this, and then she has no fire in her room. <laughs> Mr. Bertram finally sees this and makes it right, but she's abused. And then I don't know if this is where you're, what you're going to talk about in the first couple of chapters, but one thing that struck me... I noticed it when I first read it, but then when you think about it in light of the... So we talked about one of the themes of the novel is you sort of have the rug pulled out from under you. Mm -hmm. So something that looks like it's one way is actually another. Mm -hmm. Like, so the whole theater stuff, you know, things aren't what they seem. Right. The switching back and forth between characters. So it talks about early on how the girls actually seem... When you first see the girls, you think, these are nice girls. They're well behaved. Mm-hmm. And then like just a couple pages later, if maybe I'm remembering this incorrectly, I don't have my volume in front of me, but if I'm remembering right, just a couple of pages later, somebody, I think it's Fanny, makes the observation that the girls were only that way because their father was so strict. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I do want to make a point about that, but I found a place to just sort of like just picture the 10-year-old girl showing up. Mm-hmm. Okay. The little visitor... Meanwhile, so she's being sized up by everybody. Right. The little visitor, meanwhile, was as unhappy as possible. Afraid of everybody, ashamed of herself, longing for the home she had left, she knew not how to look up and could scarcely speak to be heard or without crying. Mrs. Norris had been talking to her the whole way from Northampton of her wonderful good fortune and the extraordinary degree of gratitude and good behavior which it ought to produce, and her consciousness of misery was therefore increased by the idea of its being a wicked thing for her not to be happy. The fatigue, too, of so long a journey became soon no trifling evil. In vain were the well-meant condescensions of Sir Thomas and all the officious prognostications of Mrs. Norris that she would be a good girl. In vain did Lady Bertram smile and make her sit on the sofa with herself and pug. In vain was even the sight of a gooseberry tart towards giving her comfort. She could scarcely swallow two mouthfuls before tears interrupted her. And sleep seeming to be her likeliest friend, she was taken to finish her sorrows in bed. This is how she arrives at Mansfield Park. And then, as soon as they leave, this is not a very promising beginning, said Mrs. Norris. When Fanny had left the room. (laughs) After all that I said to her as we came along, I thought she would have behaved better. I told her how much might depend upon her acquitting herself well at first. I wish there may not be a a little sulkiness of temper. Her poor mother had a... It's like, are you kidding me? She's a 10-year-old girl. You showed up and you pulled her away from her mom and her dad and her brothers and sisters. And then you told her about how ungrateful 
and wicked it would be if she didn't just think it was the best thing to ever happen to her. And she's already shy by temperament, and she has all these people built up as being above her. And so she just completely buys it, and she buys that she's a worthless piece of trash, and then she buys that because she's a worthless piece of trash who's having all these great things lavished on her, she's even worse for it. Like, And that's the way that she got off and the way that she started. And she goes for days before Edmund notices that something's wrong with her and tries to talk to her and figures out that she misses her mother. Nobody's talked to her about missing her mom. Like, (laughs) you know, it just doesn't occur to anybody that she should miss her mom. But back to what you were you were saying. So then you get these episodes that come of like, but Aunt, she's really so very ignorant. Did you not? Do you know that she did this or that she didn't know that? And oh yeah, well she is stupid and whatever. And this says, as such were the counsels by which Mrs. Norris assisted to form her niece's minds. And it's not very wonderful that with all their promising talents and early information, they should be entirely deficient in the less common acquirements of self-knowledge, generosity, <laughs> and humility. Yeah. <laughs> less common acquirements. <laughs> in everything but disposition, they were admirably taught. Yeah. Sir Thomas did not know what was wanting because, though a truly anxious father, he was not outwardly affectionate and the reserve of his manner repressed all the flow of their spirits before. That's, that's what I was thinking that's of right the thought. Yeah. That's the passage you were talking yeah. about, right? Exactly. So he's a good guy. He's anxious about his kids. He wants to form good characters. He wants to form them, mm-hmm. but they were taught admirably well and everything but this position. So you get that there at the very beginning in chapter two, then you come to the end and you get Sir Thomas's his repentance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The anguish arising from the conviction of his own errors and the education of his daughters was never to be entirely done away. Too late, he became aware how unfavorable to the character of any young people must be the totally opposite treatment which Maria and Julia had always been experiencing at home, where the excessive indulgence and flattery of their aunt had been continually contrasted with his own severity. He saw how ill he had judged in expecting to counteract what was wrong in Mrs. Norris by its reverse in himself clearly saw that he had but increased the evil by teaching them to repress their spirits in his presence as to make their real disposition unknown to him and sending them for all their indulgences to a person who had been able to attach them only by the blindness of her affection and the excess of her praise. Here had been grievous mismanagement, but bad as it was, he gradually grew to feel that it had not been the most direful mistake in his plan of education. Something must have been wanting within or time would have worn away much of its ill effect. He feared that principle, active principle, had been wanting, that they had never been properly taught to govern their inclinations and tempers by that sense of duty which can alone suffice. They had been instructed theoretically in their religion, but never required to bring it into a daily practice. To be distinguished for elegance and accomplishments, the authorized object of their youth, that was yeah. elegance and accomplishments, could have had no useful influence that way, no moral effect on the mind. He had meant them to be good, but his cares had been directed to the understanding and manners, not the disposition. And of the necessity of self-denial and humility, he feared they had never heard from any lips that could profit them. (laughs) 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 So so you get, you see that play out then in in, in two places. So you see what happens when 
Sir Thomas leaves. Everybody's happy, including right. Fanny, right? Yeah, I have that section here. Um, the Miss Bertrams were much to be pitied on the occasion, the occasion of Sir Thomas's leaving, that is, not for their sorrow, but for their want of it. Their father was no object of love to them. He had never seemed the friend of their pleasures, and his absence was unhappily most welcome. They were relieved by it from all restraint, and without aiming at one gratification that would probably have been forbidden by Sir Thomas, I love this, and without aiming at one gratification that would probably have been forbidden by Sir Thomas, they felt them themselves immediately at their own disposal and to have every indulgence within their reach. And then it contrasts Fanny, which is equally interesting. Fanny's relief and her consciousness of it were quite equal to her cousin's, but a more tender nature suggested that her feelings were ungrateful and she really grieved because she could not grieve. Sir Thomas, who had done so much for her and her brothers and who was gone forever never to return, that she should see him go without a tear was shameful insensibility. He had said to her, moreover, on that very last morning that he hoped she might see William again in the course of the ensuing winter and had charged her to write and invite him to Mansfield as soon as the squadron to which he belonged should be known to be in England. This was so thoughtful and kind, and would he had only have smiled upon her and called her my dear Fanny while he said it, every former frown or cold address might have been forgotten. But he had ended his speech in a way to sink her in sad mortification by adding, if William does come to Mansfield, I hope you may be able to convince him that the many years which have passed since you parted have not been spent on your side entirely without improvement, though I fear he must find his sister at sixteen in some respects too much like his sister at ten. She cried bitterly over this reflection when her uncle was gone, and her cousins on seeing her with red eyes set her down as a hypocrite. All he had to do was smile and say, my dear Fanny. Yeah, yeah. it's so sad. <laughs> it's... And then just one, I, I want to throw one more piece out there. So he's gone and they feel free and loose, the Miss Bertrams. And they were so well-trained in, what was it, elegance and... Accomplishments. Accomplishments. Yes. So check this out. This is in the next chapter. The Miss Bertrams were now fully established among the bells of the neighborhood, and as they joined to beauty and brilliant acquirements of manner naturally easy, and carefully formed to general civility and obligingness, they possessed its favor as well as its admiration. Their vanity was in such good order that they seemed to be quite free from it, and gave themselves no airs. While the praises attending such behavior secured and brought round by their aunt served to strengthen them in believing they had no faults. <laughs> served to strengthen them in believing they had no faults. <laughs> they, they were well taught enough, they were well aware enough, and they were vain enough to know just how to hide their vanity <laughs> and yep. to give themselves, themselves no airs. To project a humility and a sweetness and a and a they were the perfect Pharisees, mm -hmm. and so they had no love for their dad. They were perfect little Pharisees. And how did that happen? How did that happen? What well, happened? Because as Austin put it, he was not outwardly affectionate, and the reserve of his manner repressed all the flow of their spirits before him. He was cold and he was austere. They couldn't be themselves in front of him. What an interesting thing to happen in a novel, by the way. This is just a small side point, but here's a novel holding up sobriety of character. Edmund and Fanny are so far superior to almost anyone else in the novel because of their sobriety. It was one of their chief virtues that were all, and one of certainly Mary Crawford's chief flaws and Henry's is their lack thereof. But then at the same time, Sir Thomas's... Well, it, it's, yeah. it's as much self-control as anything. Right. That's what you have in the daughters and what you have in the Crawfords is this, and in Tom, is this unchecked inability to discipline themselves and mm -hmm. govern their passions. And what you have in Sir Thomas is the flip side of that, which is bottle it all up. Pretend, right? Is that Pre what you're saying? Pretend, Sir Thomas. Pretend everything is... 
good. Well, there's another, I'll throw one more thing out Or maybe there. not pretend, but at least if everything has the appearance of it, then it's fine. I'll throw one more piece into the, to speak to that. When he comes back for, from the play and he's unhappy with the performance they've been putting on, there's just this one sentence about a- after Edmund apologizes to him, it says, he did not enter into any remonstrance with his other children. He was more willing to believe that they felt their error than to run the risk of investigation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's, it was, it's so easy and convenient to raise little Pharisees. It's so easy and convenient to raise kids in such a way that in your presence, they say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and please, and thank you, and show all of the external... Outward deference. Yeah, all the, all the, all the manners that you find pleasant and appealing. And kids are really good at that sort of thing. It can keep them from getting in trouble at home. Yeah, absolutely. There are all sorts of things that you 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 can be willing to excuse and overlook if your kids master the right the right things the right externals. Oh man, Jake, how many times do we not want to run the risk of investigation? <laughs> A lot more than we want to admit. <laughs> all the time, most of the time, it's laziness. But sometimes I think, and maybe this is just me wanting to justify my laziness. But sometimes I think it's good for kids to not have, I mean, you don't want to be a helicopter dad. You can't be there holding their hand all the time. And you don't want to exasperate them by being over exacting and investigating everything. You just simply can't be there all the time. And so I think that there's a time and a place to sort of maybe let things, you don't want to say let things slide. Don't let things slide. Let their conscience be their guide. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. Well, you do need there to be space for their consciences to work on them. You can't be there. If you try to be helicopter dad, if you try to investigate every matter, then you're just going to set yourself up to be their conscience. You're not going to help them, their consciences form. Do We get really short-sighted and we think that the goal is somehow absolute perfect obedience now. And that's not the goal. The goal is mature men and women who love God and who have the inner strength and ability to say no when you're not there. Part of that is, I think, introducing them to mom and dad's disciplining their kids, spanking their kids, is God's discipline mediated by the best people in the world. Mom and dad who love you and care for you and who are tender with you. You know, kids kids need to understand that it's, it's a mediated discipline. It's a tender discipline. There's coming a day when the discipline won't all be mediated by mom and dad, when there are going to be consequences. Those consequences are going to be harder. They're not going to have the, the sweetness of mom and dad's discipline uh, surrounding them. They need to be introduced to the idea that actions have consequences, that mom and dad's discipline is good and sweet. They'd rather obey God and 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 love God and walk in his ways. Otherwise, they just end up resenting mom and dad's discipline. No, I, I see what you're saying, Jake. I, but I think Thomas Bertram was just being lazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was. He was, just like I am 99% of the time. Me too. I'm only just trying to tease out this idea that... It's helpful. Well, it's it's almost like, Jake, you're saying that instead of just focusing on their understanding and manners, you should focus on their disposition and the necessity of self-denial and humility. (laughs) That's exactly what I'm saying. The the, the stuff that... Couldn't have said it better. It's almost like Jane Austen wrote that. (laughs) It's almost like Jane Austen wrote that. (laughs) I'm a kindred spirit of Jane Austen. I've said many times. And so I just think that there's a lot going on, just to get back to, in general, why should parents 
sure. read this book. There's just a lot going on to test yourself by and to watch, you know, to examine as you as, as you see the novel unfold. Because what ends up happening, he's really proud of his kids. He thinks that they're going to be awesome and they have no self-control and they bring ruin to the whole family. Even Edmund, he almost ruins Edmund by teaching him to be to judge character the way he does. Mm-hmm. So he's almost taken in, well, is taken in by Mary Crawford. That's right. He projects what he wants to about her character based on her manners, just like Sir Thomas projected what he wanted to about his children's character based on the way they behaved in front of him. It was second nature to Edmund to do that because that's the way he'd been raised. Now you guys, as parents, though, you never, uh, you guys never demand outward conformity from your children <laughs> without uh, looking to their hearts. And probably no one listening to this podcast, no reformed Christian conservative type people, they wouldn't have anything to learn from this, I wouldn't think. <laughs> no. Well, it's funny because especially young kids, we have to be careful to not be wiser than God mm-hmm. here, even in how we talk about this, because so often how God deals with us as our father is by addressing our hearts through addressing our outward conformity. On the one hand, it's enough for God to say, you shall not commit murder. Right. That's enough. He's addressing the heart by addressing the act of murder. It's all there. At the same time, Jesus comes around and says, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you, anyone who's angry with his brother in his heart is is guilty of murder. So, the, you, you know, on the one hand, you really do address the heart by addressing the externals. But man, it's so easy to just stop and just teach your kids to be hypocrites that look you in the eye and say, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And, and are the son that says, yes, I'll obey. And then as soon as you leave, he, he doesn't do it. I remember when I was growing up, I was friends with a guy and I would go and have sleepovers and stuff at his house every once in a while. They were exactly like this. His dad was a, ah, oh, shoot, I don't want to say too much. <laughs> there was a family that actually I can think of growing up that was exactly like this too. Mm-hmm. He actually kind of looked like the eagle from Sam the Eagle from the Muppets. The dad looked like Sam the Eagle. Yeah. (laughs) My favorite Muppet character, by the way. All his children were very militaristic in their obedience, and they looked really good at home. They looked really good at school. But find out there was all sorts of wicked things going on in the house. They all have all fallen away now, including him. Yeah. Well, there are definitely some wicked things going on in the house that I'm thinking of. And what I remember, though, is we would always get into all kinds of trouble. I never got into more trouble than with uh, this family, with these kids. And we would just do stupid things like just like anything dumb we could do to rebel. We'd figure out how to do it. Then we'd have we'd get called in for dinner. Nobody would talk during dinner. This person would just very politely talk to his wife and they'd talk back and everybody would just be quiet, you know, like you were in a in a, in a museum or something like that. In the Von Trapp family? The, yeah, it was very Von Trapp. <laughs> very Von Trapp, but without the happy <laughs> spoonful of sugar at the end of it. I mean, I've never seen, it was precisely what Jane Austen's describing, like exactly. It was yeah. it was outward conformity, outward discipline. Nobody, nobody had a heart for it. Everybody hated it. I mean, I don't know. Well, the problem with, with Sir Thomas is he really loves his outward conformity and he wants the best for his kids. He's not one of Jane Austen's villains. He's one of her fools. He's a fool. Yeah, and he's, he's a fool, a fool a in the way that a lot of the British people were and the dads still are. And I mean, I see the tendency in me sometimes. I mean, it's just something that's true about. So it's, a, it's a, and that's what Jake is getting at here. It's helpful for parents to see because 
It can save you some heartache if you realize that if you're cold, especially towards your daughters, and are not affectionate to them, if you treat Fanny the way he treated her, until he gets back, if you're that cold, then it's going to be too late by the time that they're old enough to play in the theater or they're going to commit adultery. He's a very uh, subtle version of George Banks from mm-hmm. Mary yeah. Poppins. From Mary Poppins, yeah. Right. George Banks is an over-the-top version of Sir Thomas Bertram. Yeah. He sees what he wants to see. He, you know, he splendid, splendid. It's grand to be an Englishman in 1910. I treat my... Wife, children, servants with a firm and gentle hand. Noblesse oblige. But he doesn't give his heart to his kids, and they don't feel like they can talk to him. That's right. The heartbreaking thing is that he does have a heart for his kids. Like, it would be one thing if he was just the stern, cold guy, but he actually does love Fanny by the time he comes back from that trip. We know he does, and she's just like, she's shocked by it, and how sad is that? Because there's a real change in him. He's got some warmth to him that he hadn't had before. Yeah, but you sense when, when he comes back that it's always been there. He always thought he was doing the best thing. That's part of his repentance is that he thought... Aunt Norris indulges him. I'm going to counteract I've got to counteract that. I'll be bad cop. And how often do you see that or even see that in yourself, not just in other families where, you know, there's there's a mom's been indulging the kids and I've got to whip them into shape. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, then mom sees (laughs) you be excessive in your discipline in your reaction to her. So she's excessive, you know, it just... Sneaking the candy and... Yeah, it just it drives yeah. what that that lack of of unity, that lack of consistency does is it creates hypocrites in kids. And what mom and ne- dad have to do is be on the same page. And it can't be kids get all their affection from mom and all their discipline from dad. It has to be both from both. It has to be. Otherwise, kids don't know what to do and they can't they can't go to anybody and just be real and just be themselves. They have to be perfect, awesome angel child with mom and quiet, disciplined, yes, sir, with dad or whatever, however it actually plays out. Um, And then they go off into the woods and they do whatever they want to. And usually it's getting into really bad trouble. That's right. Or they go off on their bikes in the neighborhood. Or they throw a play and then... Or they throw a play. Fornicate. (laughs) Yeah. And about just, I don't think we've mentioned Lady Bertram yet, but (laughs) she fits right into what you're saying. The soft, lazy doesn't want to have anything to do with her children. Yeah. would rather deal with her dog than her kids. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm sitting on her couch. Just as long as she's not troubled by anything. Yeah. And the kids are there to serve her. Yeah. She's happy. Yeah, man. Leave the directing to Aunt Norris. I can think of people like this, but it's well, your weariness and your tiredness is your excuse for not disciplining your children. Mm-hmm. Like, I just wish I wasn't so burdened by my gluten (laughs) disease or whatever I've got. (laughs) Maybe I could get up off this couch, but you know, I ate a little bit of bread. So I'm going to sit here. That's how Aunt Aunt Norris triumphs when good moms do nothing, you know, like her Norris doesn't get her, get in there, get her claws into things. Nobody protects the kids from Aunt Norris. Yeah. So Thomas doesn't have the sense to protect his kids from Aunt Norris. I love Austin's so funny when he he realizes like maybe she wasn't the <laughs> yeah <laughs> she's so i forget what the word biting is. <laughs> like <Yeah>. ah <laughs> man <laughs> she takes the glove the gloves off with mrs norris no, at the end. Yeah. that's what i love about jane austen she um, just doesn't have any patience for <laughs> somebody like that <laughs> she's brutal yeah she can be really brutal when she needs to be not and even fanny shed a tear not even when her aunt norris was gone forever <laughs> Well, you think about how close, how close things were 
Like you think about that scene where all Sir Thomas had to do was say, my dear Fanny, or smile. Mm -hmm. And instead, it's right there before him. And you, how many times have, have you done this sort of thing yourself where instead of, you know, giving that little bit of affection or that extra bit of affection, you, you, you find a, you find a, uh, something to grab onto to, and, and you better not while I'm con or you, and yeah. you, and you know, or whatever it is it, in the, in that little smile would have done so much more for the, you better not. You the be, you better not could have gone unsaid if it had been for that smile. Because the reality is, all of the threats in the world to to kids, especially as they get into adolescence, they only turn into eye rolls unless you have their hearts. You can't you can't only you can only threaten you can only spank them for so long. Mm -hmm. You can only impose your discipline on them for so for so long before it's in their power to go. It's in there and you're out of there. You don't have influence over them anymore. You have to be like Solomon and the Proverbs, my son, give me your heart. And the way that you do that is by not just feeling a sense of love for the kids and trying to do right by them, but actually showing them love and affection. Yeah. And Sir Thomas is fine. Let's say he's cold by nature and by personality. Let's say he just has an austere bearing and everybody perceives him that way. And that's just the way he is, but he's a really great guy. And anybody that knows him to know him is to love him. But his kids, they need more yeah. than that. They need to, how did she put that again? They need the reserve of his manner repressed all the flow of their spirits before him. They need to feel free with dad. And they can only feel free where they feel safe. They can they only feel safe <laughs> where it's okay for them to be a sinner. It was never okay to be a sinner in front of Sir Thomas Bertram. It was never okay to be weak. It was never okay to fail. It was never... That you, you, you get the sense there was never a time when if they failed, if they sinned in, in his presence or it came to his attention, especially as small kids, that he would have ever sat down and looked them in the eyes and said, yeah, I sinned too. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I know it's hard. I know it's hard to obey. But simply you've just delivered his decrees, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's what's beautiful about that last chapter, though, is he learns to do that. Right. With Fanny. Mm. He's yeah. failed with everybody else, but at least with Edmund and Fanny, he and he doesn't necessarily fail completely with the other daughter either. Julia. He still gets he her comes back. around with he Julia. Gets her back. Yeah, he well, yeah. He only really loses Maria. The oldest. Right. He even gets Tom back, thanks to the providential hand of God. That's right. God <laughs> right. gives him Tom back. God, because God, God almost kills Tom. Undeserved,ly on God, God, for Tom or God for takes Tom Thomas. to the brink of certain death. Which and is sometimes the only way you get an oldest son back. <laughs> <laughs> True story. Yeah. Hmm. I'll say there was a time in my life where I really messed up badly, did some illegal substances, really could have gone down that path. But it's always striking me it's been striking to me the fact that me and my mom talked about things and so I talked to her about that and she was upset but we talked about it and I know that just sounds like the lamest kind of self-helpy thing in the world but man it made a huge difference in my life I mean I think it might have saved me from going down that path because it would have been very easy for me to go down that path but the fact that I was able to talk to somebody who was going to point me towards discipline point me towards the church point me towards good things but wasn't going to say that it was the end of the world, that it was the end of our relationship, that it was the end of, that wasn't going to go into hysterics about it. And for most for most people, pride plays so much a factor. And you see that there's a line, 
To the education of her daughters, Lady Bertram paid not the smallest attention. She had no time for such cares. She was a woman who spent her days in sitting nicely dressed on a sofa doing some long piece of needlework, little use and no beauty, thinking more of her pug than her children, but very indulgent to the latter when it did not put herself to inconvenience, guided in everything important by Sir Thomas and in smaller concerns by her sister. But then a little later, in the country, therefore, the Miss Bertrams continued to exercise their memories, practice their duets, and grow tall and womanly. And their father saw them becoming in person, manner, and accomplishments, everything that could satisfy his anxiety. His eldest son was careless and extravagant and had already given him much uneasiness, but his other children promised him nothing but good. His daughters, he felt, while they retained the name of Bertram, must be giving it new grace. And in quitting it, he trusted would extend its respectable alliances. In the character of Edmund, his strong good sense and uprightness of mind bid most fairly for utility, honor, and happiness to himself and all his connections. He just, what did he, what was he concerned about in that line? Where was his uneasiness? If while they retain the name of Bertram, they must be giving the name new grace. And in quitting it, he trusted would extend its respectable alliances. And so when you come to his repentance, Sir Thomas, poor Sir Thomas, a parent and conscious of his errors in his own conduct as a parent, was the longest to suffer. He felt that he ought not to have allowed the marriage, that his daughter's sentiments had been sufficiently known to him to render him culpable in authorizing it, that in so doing, he had sacrificed the right to the expedient and been governed by motives of selfishness and worldly wisdom. These were reflections that required some time to soften, but time will do almost anything. And though little comfort arose on Mrs. Rushworth's side for the misery she had occasioned, comfort was to be found. Dot, dot, dot. I thought there was maybe, well, maybe it was just that one line that he knew that he was governed by motives of selfishness and worldly wisdom. Mm-hmm. He was concerned about connections and about money and about his name and not about his daughter's welfare. But I think the only point I was trying to make is that so often parents when their kids sin, what they don't feel is care and concern for their kid, but care and concern for the embarrassment that their kid is causing them or could cause them. So they react in anger. They realize their kid's out of not somebody that they can control. The more out of control and impotent they feel, the more and the more concerned they are for their own reputation, the more nasty and closed off they become and the harder it is for the kids for kids to go and be honest with mom and dad yeah and the kids the kids shut down and stop caring i was just thinking of this other little chunk where he gives tom the speech about basically wasting edmund's inheritance and then it says tom listened with listened with some shame and some sorrow but escaping as quickly as possible could soon with cheerful selfishness reflect firstly that he had not been half so much in debt as some of his friends secondly that his father had made a most tiresome piece of work of it And thirdly, that the future incumbent, whoever he might be, would in all probability die very soon. Yeah, and that's all because Thomas, wasn't it like, you realize you set him back 10, 20, 30 years, his whole life. Yeah, yeah. I blush for you, Tom, he said in his most, I blush for the expedient which I have driven on, and I trust I may pity your feelings as a brother on the occasion. You've robbed Edmund for 10, 20, 30 years, perhaps for life, more than half the income which ought to be his. (laughs) (laughs) More than half the income that ought to be his. And he's sitting there. You know, come on, come on, come on. I got things to do. Yep. Blah, blah, blah. All Thomas has left with Tom is the ability to give him some verbal abuse mm-hmm. and then choose, 
choose to how, how what was the line bef- from that you read before not to investigate the matter yeah, oh yeah <laughs> yeah oh man that's so choose to accept that his words were sufficient rather than investigate yeah. the matter he, he did like- not enter into any remonstrance with his other children he was more willing to believe they felt their error than to run the risk of investigation <laughs> <laughs> yeah run the risk of investigation like yeah, that was pretty damning, man. <laughs> like he wouldn't want to discover that they didn't, so better just not to investigate this one. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, it's lucky that obviously you know you guys aren't like that. You don't know anybody <laughs> like that. There's nope. no homeschoolers or uh, reformed type people that are like that. None. Listen, there's something I just want to say. There's so many dads in our circles that are recovering authority and recovering discipline in their homes. And they are feeling their weakness and feeling the need to to wear that authority and to wear that discipline. And Proverbs is full of the commands of dads, spare not the rod, you're not going to kill him. Don't hate your kid and not discipline him and send him to hell or to his death. But in the New Testament, there are... The warning to dads is fathers, do not exasperate your children. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. There are lots of ways to exasperate your children, but one really good way to do it is to uh, be so intent on recovering some sense of authority and discipline that you refuse your kids the smiles and the Mm -hmm. hugs and the tickles and the silliness that dads should be able to well, to give to their kids. I'm not a dad, but I used to be a, a kid at one point in my life. And I, I could say that you can really buy a lot from your kids for a smile. You know, like if you're going to be Mr. Authority guy and you want to get away with it and not exasperate them, just throw a couple of smiles and my dear Fanny's in there and you could probably screw up however you want in whichever direction. A spoonful of sugar goes a long, long way. <laughs> yeah, towards <laughs> Have yourself a heap and helping every day. Every day. <laughs> well brandon are you gonna say my dear fanny to your children my dear nathan my dear nathan smile at you i'm not your child you're not my child (laughs) thank goodness that would be exasperating (laughs) (laughs) well guys this is our final episode on mansfield park yeehaw um brandon yeah what do we call that thing? BSOA, Booking Seal of Approval. Do you give it to Mansfield Park? Yes. Austin's Mansfield yes. Park. Yes, 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 yes. How many stars out of 400? 400. All right. Jake, same question. 401. Whoa. Whoa. Whoa, he's one up in me. <laughs> people should <laughs> That's definitely, what I do. <laughs> people should read this novel, right? It's fantastic. I also give it the coveted BSOA, the Booking Seal of Approval, in case you folks didn't know what that stood for. I love it. I love Jane Austen. She's a very wise lady and also incredibly fun to read. Hey, man. Nice, nice combination right there. Let's see here. Uh, what, what, what are we talking about next week? We get uh, we doing Wrinkle in Time next week, Jake? Yeah, why not? All right, cool. Movie's coming out. Future president of the United States is starring oh, in it. Boy. Oh, brother. <laughs> All right, folks. So uh, this is not on our official list, but we're, th- we're going to just make March into like the sci-fi sort of kids book 
kind of like I don't know. Ready Player One really counts as a kids book, but no, we're, we're, no. 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 no, no. Well, you should, should you have your kids read it. read it. No, you shouldn't. If that's if that's the question, but have lots of kids read it. Yes. Oh, probably. Yeah. But should your kids? No, probably nope. not. Well, go ahead don't and spoil do that. Yeah, no don't. chance. No. Should you read it? Well, we'll find out next a couple weeks from now. But first, we're going to read Wrinkle in Time. And uh, in the meantime, what you probably want to do, I encourage people to come behind the paywall. It's a fine place, right, Brandon? It's great. Right, Jake? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's the best. It's the best. And you'll be joined by you find people like Benjamin Tiberius, the Professor X, people like that. Yeah, come behind the paywall, patreon.com forward slash the booking. You can donate as little as whatever you want and as much as whatever you want. And it's great. There's different award levels and things and stuff and beautiful books you can get sent to you for just $50 a month, which might sound expensive, but yeah, maybe you're a baroness. Maybe you've got an inheritance. Maybe you've just got money burning a hole in your pocket. Maybe you're a poor person that just really loves the booking. I don't know. I don't know who you are. I don't know your business. You probably want to do that. Guys, it's been fun talking about Jane Austen's Mansfield Park. It's a good novel. It's been a good time. Yeah. Yay, Jane Austen. Yay. Until next year. Until next year, Jane. We'll join you again for one of your other novels. Persuasion or Sense and Sensibility, right? Probably Sense and Sensibility. I think we might want to double back and do Sense and Sensibility. That's probably what we need to do. And then we'll just have Persuasion and good old Northanger Abbey. The weirdest one. The weirdest one. I think Mansfield Park is the weirdest one in some way. But we'll discuss that in year six when we've read all of them. Hey, thanks for listening, folks. We won't be reading any of Jane Austen's Juvenalia. I don't believe in it. (laughs) 